All right, you guys, so if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 1. Very easy to find. Again, it's the very last book of the Bible. If you see the maps, you've gone too far. Yeah. Uh, With the first three verses of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, we have it established that this was a book that was intended to be understood by its original audience and the church in every age. We went over that last week. And for good reason, because rightly understanding this prophetic apocalypse will be a blessing to us. That is the testimony of the letter itself in the the opening verses. It sustains us and it encourages and corrects the church all throughout the, the church age, the period of time between Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father and his second coming. It's the sovereign God who orders all of history according to his will for the purpose of revealing Jesus Christ that is on display here. And so reading and understanding and believing what is said here and put forth here, we read in verse 3 that it is a a blessing for those who do that. Now the passage that we have in view for tonight, it's going to take us two weeks to cover, maybe three, I think two though. But what it is, is it's a greeting from God on his throne from the throne room of God, a a salutation from the Lord himself. And so this will be part one. So let's read the passage and then we'll pray asking for God's blessing. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse four in Revelation one, is John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time to open up your word together tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us understanding, that Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, you would free free them from distractions, from things of this world, and help us to focus on what it is that your word says. Lord, help me to be faithful to the testimony of it. God, may I get out the way so that Christ may shine forth from, from your word and that we may worship you, for you are worthy of all worship and adoration. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is an introduction that is in some ways similar to the other letters in the New Testament as well. But also, in another way, it's more profound and more majestic than the rest of them. Revelation actually gives us some of the strongest and most clear statements on the doctrine of the Trinity, and we have one of them here in our introduction. So like I said, we're going to, or not really introduction, this is more of, again, the the greetings or the salutation from the throne room of God. So like I said, we're going to take this section over at least two weeks because of time constraints. And so tonight, primarily, what will be in verse is verse 4 and the, well, just in the very, very beginning of verse 5. Uh, it's going to be the way that we're going to approach this. And so I'll give you kind of like an outline that you can think of as we go through it is one, John's audience. Then two, the familiar epistle introduction. Then three, we see a Trinitarian greeting. 
And that's what we'll consider tonight. I was going to consider this fourth point as well, but I just when I was working all this out, there was no way I was going to be able to do that and have and be finished in a regular amount of time. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And then fifth, the work of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, and then seventh and lastly, an affirmation of Jesus' deity. So a lot to cover here. That's why we're breaking it into at least two sermons. Again, I thought that this, this first sermon was going to end with point four, so maybe it's, this turns into three. I'm not sure, but we'll see how that all plays out. And there is, there is so much to cover here that really we could do um, even more than that because of the subjects of you, but I don't want to lose the thrust of the text for the details of it. Because what we have here is a is really, I think, is a joy-inducing and soul-stirring greeting from the throne of God, from Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. The Lord God is, intended, is intent on giving his church a message that will bless and encourage them in good times and hard times. It will call them back to remembering the details of his covenant promises in history past, as well as what how he is working through the present and all the way into the future, into the second coming of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom into the eternal age. You know, we speak of Christ's kingdom and his coming in those two stages, right? And the first stage, it was inaugurated. It began and his second coming, it'll be consummated, it'll be completed, it'll be finished. And so notice how it starts here in verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The seven churches that would be located today in modern Turkey, if they were still there, of course they're not. But the island of Patmos sits off the western shore of modern Turkey. That's where John is writing from. We'll see that when we get down to verse 9 eventually. And John is going to mention all these seven churches by name in the next two chapters. They are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you were to look at them on a map, you would see that they form a circle, kind of. Not a perfect circle or something like that. Maybe like a circle if you tried to draw with your left hand and your eyes closed. But you can see like a circular shape, a route to all these churches. And what's important about these churches is that they would all be connected by a Roman road. And so the letter would travel from one church and then go to another church and then another church and so on. And it wouldn't be just that, um, just that little portion that's directed to those individual churches in chapters two and three that would be read. It would be the whole book of Revelation that would be read to them. Remember we talked about that before, that each of these seven churches has a special, unique and specific uh, instruction or warning or admonishment or encouragement to them, but the whole of the book of Revelation is is actually for those churches. And so it would probably go to one church and then it would be copied and then it would be passed along to the next church and they would copy it and it would be passed along so that they would all be able to have it. And if you remember, again, from a couple of sermons ago, I think in the, the first one we talked about this, how, again, each church has specific instruction for them, but again, it's it's the whole book of Revelation that is for these seven churches. They all need um, those specific admonishments, and they all need the rest of the encouragements that's in this book as well, too, including this greeting from the throne room of God. Now, it's not like these were the only seven churches that existed at this time. Uh, we know that there are other churches, even in the area that these ones would appear that, that these ones are in. But it would appear that John had an especially close relationship with these ones. By the way, there's no like identifying information about John here, right? It's just John. 
It's just John to the seven churches. It's not like John the beloved disciple or John the the brother of James or John the apostle or anything like that. Uh, it's just John. But church history and the confession of the church for the part, better part of the last 1900 years affirms that it's the apostle John who is writing here. And that's good enough for me. But you will come across people who think that this is some other John. Just so you know, there's no real good reason to reject the testimony of the other church and the affirmation of the history of the church about this being the Apostle John, by the way, too. But it seems like he's just, he's familiar with them because he just says John. Like they would know who he's talking about. It's not just, you know, some random John that they never heard of before, but it's someone they, that they would know. So there's much more going on here with this introduction, though. Joel Bickey notes that our understanding of Revelation cannot be confined to the first century. So even though this letter is addressed to the seven already mentioned churches, there is a good reason to believe that the message of this book has just as much meaning for other churches that existed around those seven church churches, but also for us today. And for every church that has ever existed since this book was written and passed around. The, excuse me one second here, the, um, J.K. Beale, again, in his commentary, he goes on to say that John's prophetic message is actually addressed to the entire body of Christ. In other words, the church in every age. And the reason that he says that, and the reason that we should believe that that's true, is because of John's use of the number seven here. It's, of course, true that there are seven churches in Eastern Asia that are going to be named in the next chapters, but there's also something going on more here with the use of the number seven and the implication of that here. Revelation, being that it is apocalyptic literature, quite often takes advantage of what is called numerology. And essentially what that is, is a way of teaching something fuller by describing the thing in view with a specific number. This is done a number of ways, and rather point out the significance of all the different numbers now and the combinations of numbers as well. We'll save that for when we get to them in the specific text in Revelation. But what we're confronted with here in our passage for tonight is the number seven. And, and even more, this is less obvious, you might have noticed there's patterns of threes in this greeting from the throne room, which in the Hebrew numerology, three is the number for perfection. It's a number for God, which is a clue to the Trinity of God as well. But look at verse four. Uh, you have the three divine persons in view. And Jesus' person is described with three statements. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And then his work is described in threes as well. He loves us. He frees us. He made us a kingdom of priests. And then verse seven, or then verse seven three again, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And, of course, the formula in four and eight, he who is and who was and who is to come. So all these patterns, these repeating patterns of three, four times just in, the, in these verses. And it's just simply emphasizing those things are all true, but it's also emphasizing that, that this is God's message and it's his divine greeting that's in view here at this point. And he is, he is perfect. Uh, he, he is perfection itself. So think about comforting and encouraging this is, friends, that the God who is sovereign over every event in history, he is commissioning John to write unto even us today. The message of hope in light of the different trials that will befall us in this age, which Revelation is going to talk about. The loving God is revealing himself here and testifying to his character as the means for our joy and peace in receiving this letter. 
that even though Christ has risen and he has ascended, he is still with us. And the events which are happening in this age are all under his sovereign power. It's a comforting and good thing that this bundling of three entails to us on top of the things that, that they convey just specifically as well. But the number seven is especially important and used throughout this book. It's used 54 times. And the use of it is to convey fullness or completion. And we see it first here in verse four, but then it's also the seven spirits later in that same verse. It's the, there's the seven lampstands in verse 12. We're going to read of seven stars, seven torches, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, and seven trumpets, seven thunders. Uh, Beale in his commentary calls seven the favorite number of Revelation. And that would make sense, I think, because again, this book is about God's covenant of grace being fulfilled and completed. That's what the number seven seeks to convey, fullness and completion. The kingdom has been inaugurated with this covenant, and it will be consummated and usher in the new heaven and the new earth when Christ comes again. And of course, the, the end chapters of Revelation deal with that. And so the idea of saying the seven churches here again is to convey a particular message to the seven churches that are listed, but also... It's speaking to the fullness of the church that existed in John's day and will continue to exist until Christ comes again. The church then and now needs to be encouraged, and we go through trials in every age. Uh, we're going to read about trials facing the church in, in, their, in John's original audience, and we face similar trials ourselves today, and the church has faced trials that are of the same kind throughout every uh, year, every generation that it has existed. The church then and now needs to be warned because sometimes people become a part of the community of the church who aren't actually really a part of the new covenant or the covenant of grace, even though they are professing to be. And so we have warnings for people to heed that will persevere them in the faith or they will expose them as not being truly converted. The number seven here is telling us that this is the universal church that is in view for John's audience. And some of these realities, they don't change for this age. So let's consider what he's wanting the church to know. Uh, notice how his greeting begins. It's the familiar epistle or, or a form of it that we should be used to, as the, the greeting that a, a normal epistle has, especially with the Apostle Paul's letters. It's grace to you and peace. Most people, when they think of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, or even the term apocalypse, it sounds kind of ominous, right? Maybe that's my, like, X-Men history or whatever, and I think of apocalypse, and he's this, like, totally amazing villain. But apocalypse means to unveil. Revelation means to show, to, to, to reveal. And many people, when they think of this book, they think of doom and wrath and judgment and conflict yeah, there's lightning and thunder and hail and riders on horses. And we don't tend to think of grace and peace when we come to this book. But that is, in fact, what we should be thinking of when we read this book. It's true that those darker elements of the book are here, but they are all in the backdrop of grace and peace that is given to us in this revelation of Jesus Christ. Even the giving of the information, right, of these trials that are going to come upon this world, that's a result of the grace of God, isn't it? I mean, he didn't have to tell us these things, right? We aren't in a position of forcing God to give us these truths, correct? None of us can tell God, oh God, you have to tell me what's going to, what it's going to be like, what, what will happen. Nobody's able to say that to the Lord. 
grace is unmerited favor. It is the grace of God that we are even having these things revealed in the first place. It is by the grace of God that we're saved. We don't earn or deserve salvation. It is a sovereign work of God that is given to us as a gift, and we receive it because grace has transformed us and made us to desire it. But grace doesn't stop there. It is by the grace of God that we have what we have, and we do what we do even. And the Christian especially realizes that all of life is of, is of grace. All of our life is, is of the grace that has come to us through Jesus Christ. Who would we be to demand anything from God? It would be like a little earthworm commanding you to do something for it. And even more than that, actually, because the distance between what you are and what an earthworm is, is small in comparison to the difference between what we are in comparison to what God is and who God is. And more on that in just a moment. But it's not just grace that we're being offered here. It's peace as well. Grace to you and peace. And it's in that order. No grace from God, no, pay, no peace either. No true peace or real peace, that is. But when the grace of God so transforms a person, that person is made to have peace, a true, real peace. That's what Romans 5.1 says. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, uh, since we have been justified by faith, which again is an act of the grace of God towards us, even faith is a gift that he gives to us. It says, even though we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God, whereas we once had enmity, whereas we once had strife, whereas we once had a position of distancing and war towards God, as Romans 8 would say it. But we also, but because of grace, we now have peace, but we also have peace in our circumstances and among the various trials that may befall us. Why? Because of the great love of God. It permits us to have a peace that surpasses understanding as it guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus, as Philippians 4 mentions. Jesus himself truly is the man of grace and peace to the elect. So peace, not only grace to us, enables us to have peace with God, but also peace through the trials and the things that we are going to face in this world, which Revelation is going to entail. So again, against the backdrop of all of the what we may call gloom and darkness of some of the things that we read here, for the Christian, it is all against the backdrop of grace and peace that we're to have even through it. And here, here is God revealing it to us, showing us it so that we wouldn't be surprised by these types of things that are going to take place. And so it is grace and peace from who? From the triune God. Uh, the greeting is brought from each person of the Trinity, from Father, from Son, and Spirit. But it's interesting that the classic order is not followed there. It goes Father, Spirit, and then Son. And I think that's because the greeting goes on to explain more about the person and the work of the Son. And so as I was saying earlier, the distance between what God is and what we are is greater than we can truly fathom. And so it's the eternal Father that is in view here first. It is Him who is and who was and who is to come. And there is an essence in which we are seeing that God is unchanging and everlasting in this verse. And again, Jesus is God. This so the same title is going to be applied to Jesus in verse 8. But there's a, I think there's a specific reason for that as well, too. But we'll deal with that next week. So number one, uh, he is. So thinking of the time frame, 
He is present, present then. He was past, and he is coming, future. In other words, there's no time when God sovereignly didn't exist, and there will be no time in which he is not existing and being who he is and displaying his sovereignty. And that is really put forth to us in the first phrase, he is. That's not just a comment on present time. It's also a comment on the nature and the character of God himself. He is, or God is, and just a hard stop after the is. It's a weird thing to say, you would think, because we're so used to saying, like, you know, Daniel is nice, kind, or, you know, quiet, um, whatever it is we might say. But when, when the scriptures and here says he is, it's also meaning something about God's character and nature, but it's totally appropriate and right to just hard stop after that because of who God actually is. Um, it is another way of communicating the ancient name that God disclosed to Moses back in Exodus 3, there at the burning bush. You know, God announces to Moses that he has a plan to redeem Israel, alluding to the promises of the covenant of grace. And so Moses asked him, well, when he goes back and tell the people this plan, what should they call him? What is his name? And God's response in verse 14 is to say, I am who I am. God is who he is, in other words, which sounds kind of obvious, but it really is profound and impossible for us to actually fully comprehend. The point that it's wanting to make is that God is not defined by what he does. Neither is he defined by the sum of all his parts. In fact, he doesn't have parts. He's not made up of a bunch of different parts that come together to make God. He, he needs nothing. He can't change because he is perfection. And we are made in his image, but we're not like him at all in those categories. James Dolezal attempts to communicate this idea that God is in his book, All That Is In God. When he says this, he says, There is nothing in God that is not simply himself, his divinity. And although that is hard to wrap our minds around, that all that is in God is God, and it's just, it's just God is, he, he, I am that I am. The reality that it is the case that God is so grand and so majestic and so mighty and so totally other than us is a great comfort to us. John is wanting to know his, hearer, his hearers to know that even though a great trial and tribulation is going to come upon them, they're not lost. And we're not lost either because God is. God is he's in control of everything. And we're not going to be forsaken and will not be ultimately destroyed because the great I am is and was and is to come. The next person uh, that extends the greeting is the Holy Spirit. So it's grace to you and peace from, well, the seven spirits that are before the throne. Now, the Holy Spirit is one person, and he is of the same essence of the Father and of the Son. There is one God and three persons, but now we read of seven spirits. So that might be a bit confusing. Some commentators have said that this isn't actually the Holy Spirit that's referenced here. That's maybe like seven angels. And if you look in like Jewish extra biblical literature, they talk about seven archangels. And so some people might want to speculate and say that that's them, but that actually can't be the case. So I think the original Greek, what is it <laughs> the seven spirits, it's the number seven in spirits pneuma. So, but I don't know uh, the, the number seven in the Greek at least. 
Is it the same word that it's used to describe the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, that's not what's important here. What's important is because grace and peace only come to us through God. Right? Grace and peace aren't coming to us through angels. And so we need to remember, again, the use of seven here. It's about completeness or fullness. And so what John is saying is that the Holy Spirit, in all of its fullness before the throne, extends this greeting. The Holy Spirit who first enlivens the church, who makes us alive through regeneration and the effectual call. Uh, see recent Sunday evening sermons. If you want to know about that, if you go to our website, you can look up on the podcast hosting site, the Sunday evening sermons. We just did two messages about those very things. So the Holy Spirit does that and enlivens us, but then he also energizes and equips the church for service after we've been enlivened as well. And it's as if he's standing before the throne ready to be to do those things. And so John is wanting us to know, friends, that when we are saved, it's not like we just get a little part of the Holy Spirit. And like you over there, you have some, uh, you have a little bit of the Holy Spirit too. Steve, he has a lot of the Holy Spirit because he's a deacon. That's not what is being conveyed. That's not how it works. When we are born from above and receive Christ in our salvation, we get the fullness of the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers us to become the temple in which God dwells. And so it's important for the church in this age as we experience trials to know this about our God. We need grace to persevere in the faith in the midst of tribulation, and especially under the pressure to compromise with the world which is a major theme that gets addressed in this book. And so the Holy Spirit in all his fullness here is symbolized as the number seven to tell us further about the fullness of the Spirit that we have and that we'll need to deal with the coming tribulations and trials that face us in this church age. And this isn't the only place in God's word where this takes place even. Back in Isaiah 11, and you could turn there if you like, but if you do, just keep your finger in Revelation because we're coming right back. In Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 1, Isaiah prophesies about a branch that will come from the stump of Jesse that will bear fruit, which is kind of a, maybe sounds like a weird thing to say. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. So the branch is a prophetic title for Jesus. It's a name for Jesus. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So that's about Jesus here to look at through the rest of Isaiah. And other places, I think in Hebrews as well, refers to Jesus as the branch there. Um, and there's also allusion, of course, to John 15, with the, he is the vine, the branches in that whole section. But what comes after verse 1 is obviously verse two. And in that verse, the spirit is described in seven ways as being on the branch of Jesse, of having wisdom and understanding, having counsel and might, having knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So sevenfold fullness right there. Joel Beakey notes this here. He says, in other words, the church of God shines in the darkness of the world with a sevenfold fullness of light, excuse me, sustained by a sevenfold supply of the spirit of God. And we can't live in, in the way that God intends for us to live as the church in this world apart from the Holy Spirit, friends. He's essential, not just to salvation, 
but to our witness into the world after we have been saved. And remember, Christ is part of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the groom. The church is the bride. He's the foundation the church is built upon. And so look back to Revelation chapter 3, but look at, or excuse me, Revelation and go to chapter 3. Revelation 3, 1 says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we'll get to the seven stars in a few weeks. But did you notice here that Jesus has the seven spirits of God? Jesus is the hymn of that message. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the spirit descended upon him and then it dwelt upon him. And John 3, 34 records John the Baptist saying that Jesus gives the spirit without measure. So it's the again, it's the fullness of the spirit that is in view, the spirit without measure. And so Jesus has the spirit and he's given, he's giving them this testimony to the church and the spirit is before the throne. That's not to say that he's not on the throne or anything like that. He certainly is. The Holy Spirit is of the same essence of the father and the son. He's truly God, but he's before the throne here in this sense, back in chapter one, because this is a revelation to the church. It is the spirit who is given to the church as we just read about in uh, in chapter 3, as we just saw there as well. The Holy Spirit is, uh, he or he's proceeding from the throne to the bride of Christ to equip us and to reveal Christ to us. The uh, Holy Spirit is often compared to water and to a river, especially. Uh, listen to what John recorded in chapter 7 of his gospel account concerning salvation. He says this, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So then after Jesus said those things, verse 39, John explains what he's saying. And he says this is now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there's a lot going on here that's important about the Spirit not being yet given since Jesus wasn't glorified. We don't have time to cover those things in details tonight, but that's in reference to the mighty way the Spirit was given and how he would operate in the apostolic era uh, with the sign gifts and things like that. Because certainly believers already had the Spirit then. But note, this is what he says, the Spirit is given to the church like a, a river of living water. And when you think about what Revelation 21 says, that there is a river of life proceeding from the throne of God in Revelation 21, it says that. You see what Revelation is communicating there, is that the Spirit and the, the fullness of the Spirit comes to us from the Father and the Son and is essential to life and ministry of the church. And he is the one who enables us and endures us, it enables us to endure and perseveres us in the faith. So thanks, thanks be to God. And then thirdly, we see the greetings from Jesus Christ. And again, now it's interesting that Jesus is mentioned third here because the formula is typically Father, Son, Spirit. But I want you to remember something that we talked about last week. This book is the apocalypse of, or the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is a book about Christ and the covenant promises and blessings that is being met and will finally be met in him. And so John postures this greeting from Christ in the third spot because he has more to say about Christ as this is the revelation of Jesus Christ than he does of the Father and the Spirit who preceded him in this greeting. And the first three descriptions are about who Christ Jesus is. 
And the latter three are about what he does. And we think of Jesus, you guys, as our mediator, the only mediator between God and man. We should think of him in these two ways often, who he is and what he does, because both are absolutely connected. And and he and understanding one rightly helps us to understand the other one rightly as well, too. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And because that is who he is, he is able to save us. Who he is relates specifically to what he has done. If Jesus were not the God-man who executed the office of prophet, priest, and king, he's our, he's our prophet because he reveals to us the word of God. He's our priest because he makes a sacrifice for us, and he, he himself is the sacrifice. And he is our king because he reigns and he rules over us. If he weren't all those three, three things, he didn't execute those three things, he wouldn't be able to save us. But as it is, as the letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to the Father through him. To save to the uttermost is to save completely. To save from start to finish. Now, I want to say more here, but that's going to take us into the text that we have for next week. So in closing, when we think about the church... We have a tendency to think about our local congregation, and that's not bad. That's okay. A meaningful membership at a local congregation is an assurance to one's profession of faith, and it's thoroughly biblical as well. But what Revelation helps us to remember is that the church is more than just a local body. The church is more universal. It is God, all of God's people existing in, but also called out of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And part of the population is already in glory, right? They're already living in what we would call that the intermediate state, where they're disembodied, but they're with the Lord, free from sin and sin's effects, yet they have, a, yet they have um, still not yet been fully uh given the the benefit of the covenant of grace which is their new body as well too that'll come when they when god consummates the kingdom but part of god's church is there already that that is the point and the testimony of revelation for us is that god has in his mind the events and the inner workings of all his people in every age and everywhere and that should lead us to praise god you know, just because things may be rough on the church in one place, it doesn't mean that they're exactly the same way in another place where the church exists as well. It may be totally different in another place. And God is working through all of these matters. And this book of Revelation is written for the church in every space and time in between these two uh, comings of Christ. And he, the triune God, the only God, he is bringing about grace and peace to his people the church. Apart from grace, there would be no peace. But since God has chosen to be gracious towards us, because the Father chose us, the Son lived and died for the church, the true church, and the Spirit's applied Christ's work to us all by grace, we have peace. And we can have peace even in light of the trials and tribulations in this world. That's why this greeting from the throne room starts out that way. Again, all the the gloom and the the darkness that people typically think about with revelation it's in the backdrop of this gracious message that has been given to us grace and peace we have even despite whatever might come our our way in this world and so friends you need to understand that the events of this book have taken place and will be taking place and this is god's message to his church but if you're not trusting christ 
if you're not confessing that Christ is Lord, and then there isn't grace and peace for you. This message from the throne room is for his church. And if you're not sure if you're part of the church, if you don't know really what that means, or if you have not uh, received Christ and confessed him as Lord, what's stopping you from doing that? Have you thought it through? Talk to me about it. We can work through what salvation means and what it entails. It's a gift. And if we desire it, it's because God has shown us that it's the right thing to desire. So talk with me or one of the other adults that are here as well. Because this book that we're going through, Revelation, it is, again, it is meant to bless us. It is meant to convey to us grace and peace in light of whatever might come our way as we live in God's world, as he is working towards the consummation of his kingdom. So it's a helpful book. But it's a helpful book to those who are in the church, who are a true part of the church. So if you have questions about that, we can we can deal with that. Let's pray. And then if we have questions, I'll take any of those. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you would send to us such an encouraging message from your very throne room to start out this book, Lord. It helps us to be grounded on firm principles of your holy character and your good and perfect will. And so we ask that you would give us understanding as we think about this book going forward, especially, but every day, Lord, as we think about who you are and what it is that you've done. And we do, I do ask, Lord God, that you would soften the hearts of those who are your enemies, that you may save all of the elect, that every name who is written in the book of life uh, will be registered because of what Christ has done. We know that it, that is the case. So God, may your will be done and may you help us to look to you always and be fully satisfied in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, any questions? Cool, cool. Okay. <laughs>